back to Buck's Madness. Oh, yeah. We are back. We are doing it again. Doing it again. Oh, uh, this is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name is David. And this week, we will be continuing our reading of Neocolonialism by Kwame Nkrumah. But before we do that, we're going to start like we start mm-hmm. most episodes with some current events. And this one, spoiler alert, may be a lengthier current events. <laughs> so uh, if that is the case, just there are important things going on. And we're going to talk about them before we jump into reading this week. Yeah. Um, so the, the two big ones, the two the two uh, most important ones in my mind um, is... Red Hill and uh, Justice for Amir. So, Red Hill is in Hawaii. Um, obviously, you know, indigenous Hawaiians have been asking people not to come out there as tourists for a long time and bring COVID. And a few months ago, of course, people brought COVID there. Well, in the meantime, of course, the Navy, the U.S. military is always stationing in Hawaii. You know, what's what's indigenous Hawaiians' interest when you're worried about pineapples tourism in the fucking military, right? Hey, man. Um, and... So, you know, the military has been there and at Red Hill, they have a, I think it's a fuel storage or a fuel transfer station. I thought it was storage, yeah. Yeah. And it's been, oil's been leaking from it um, or gas has been leaking from it into the water supply. It's very dangerous for the wildlife, for local residents, uh, even for the Navy personnel there. Um, But obviously, they're the cause of the problem. They would just, you know, have not been there if they weren't there in the fucking first place. And the U.S. Navy is just fighting it every tooth and nail, everything they can. And another example of electoralism, even when you have someone believing it's on your side, uh, Hawaiian, you know, government, um, of course, is facing public pressure for this and has to act for it. So they're like trying to push the Navy out of of Red Hill and the Navy is suing them. And it's oh, it's just procedural. It's just it's just legal. It's just legal. So actually, you actually have some productive legislation going into place but the powers that be you're just using the judicial system to put it and it's always that shit right like it's always oh we'd, we'd love to do it but we got to get our party together or, oh we're passing oh. legislation but it's getting vetoed or oh we have this good legislation but then there's this bad law republicans do in the state it, it's just but you got to trust the system the system's so good now it's oh we have this legislation because people are gonna fucking hang us if we keep poisoning them for the navy but oh the navy's suing us yeah. You know, and and like it's it's such shit. It's such bullshit all the fucking time. Um, so obviously, you know, I mean, indigenous Hawaiians, as always, you know, the the, the most imprisoned population in Hawaii. Uh, you know, people that that belong that shouldn't have Americans. You know, coming there and colonizing and making them quote unquote a state, and then loading uh, this up for Dole's interest, for tourism industry's interest, and for the military interest. And and now they're subject to even more, you know, environmental and, and personal damage. This is just an ongoing um, occupation and an ongoing genocide. And it's always procedural bullshit. Oh, we tried. We tried because the system is crap and it cannot help you. Nope. Not from um, not, not, in the, not in the way it is constructed currently and not in any way that voting is going to make a difference on. Yes. Um, so, you know, and I'm not saying like using electoralism to expose the corruption in the system and suppose that the system is useless is a bad thing. That's a strategy of Lenin, but using it earnestly, thinking like the solution is going to come from electoralism, it's just not. It's just fucking not. I'm sorry. Um, the Wait. other thing, of course... Oh, oh no, go ahead. No, please. 
I was going to say the other thing that that I was uh, leaning on is uh, justice for Amir, for Amir Locke. Um, Amir Locke was murdered in a no-knock raid. Um, so these are where you very explicitly see that police and the military are the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. And the military, of course, does these things all the time and doesn't cut through what the police consider red tape. The police doesn't don't like listening to this, right? Sometimes police have to get warrants um, or get like things signed by judges. The military just fucking goes, okay, we're at war in this country. We can do whatever the hell we want. But it's really the same thing. And when you see like the body cam footage of these no-knock raids, you can see this is like, you know, the military busting in to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to raid, I mean, anybody else, right? It is very much a, a military, militaristic idea, um, operation. And so it was like five or six cops armed to the teeth, bust in, you know, military style into a sleeping person's residence at 6 a.m. Uh, for what was a warrant for the cousin of... Amir Locke's roommate's girlfriend or something. There was no excuse for them to bust in here on Amir Locke. And because he has a gun, which he has ownership, he he was a licensed, you know, he's licensed to carry that gun, right? And he had it in his person at the residence that he was at, right? I mean, there's there's nothing illegal or dangerous about that. And they busted in and pointed guns at them. And as he's waking up, they just see the gun flash. He's not pointing it at people. And if he was, you scared him shitless and busted in there and asked for that situation. But he wasn't. You just kind of see the top of the gun. And cops get to make the narrative, right? So they say he pointed a gun at us. And so when people see the gun in the video, they're like, oh, look, there it is. There's the proof, right? Instead of like, oh, there's just a gun laying there and he's flipping over scared because you're waking him up and then shooting him. Um, and then they murdered him. And then, of course, the protests have been strong, but you don't see the media coverage of them this year. No. Right? Apparently, apparently that was like, you know, that you don't you don't get to notice the media covering uh, the protests that are happening um, anymore. You know, once the Democrats in office, then then it doesn't matter. Right. Every bit as much to all of the people out there protesting and to everyone that gives a crap about human life and, and fighting police brutality. Yep. Um, and of course, you know, I mean, police budgets have just gone up, right? There was there was the call for defund police, and a couple, I, I think there was a couple bits of legislation in a couple cities, and they didn't even go into effect, and it's all been rolled back, and budgets have been ballooned. Um, you know, I mean, this Biden presidency, it's it's the same old thing, right? Wars are expanding, oil drilling is rapidly expanding, um, uh, uh, deportations are expanding. Uh, police budgets are expanding. Everything that is terrible about this country is expanding because that's what they do in every goddamn presidency. Party does not matter. Um, but most importantly, you know, I mean, Amir Locke was was victim of a brutal no-knock raid um, and lost his life for no reason whatsoever. Um, and so, you know, we stand by, of course, the, the Justice for Amir movement and uh, we will, you know, keep our eye best on on events up there. But don't think that these protests only exist when they pop up on NBC. Uh, they are happening. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and for such a similar, so, I mean, it's so. It's like why? Why is this suddenly less l- less deserving of news coverage? What about it is unique? What about yeah. it is different? Or is it just? Oh. Well, we said all the nice things we had to say last time. Aren't we done with this? Yeah, Isn't this the, over now? Yeah, the problem is not solved, but 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 we did recognition, right? You have to acknowledge. It's it you know, mm-hmm. that, that's the liberal thing, mm-hmm. right? You you acknowledge and then you and then you heal. It's not like, oh, the system is causing this deadly, horrendous evil problem and it has to be fixed and, and to fix the system has to be overturned. It's oh, 
we reconciled. We we you know we 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 did our little our little kneeling and our little speeches and 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 you know when we named a road, named a road. George yeah, Floyd. Yeah, so it's all better now. So you know it doesn't matter. It's all better yeah. now. Um, and, and it'll be all better unless these protests flare up with a, a, a Republican in office because Republicans are obviously like you know language wise even worse than Democrats and policy wise just as bad. But um, mm-hmm. also, you know, they're they're the only ones that get any media attention when they do the same wrong stuff. Um, and that doesn't exactly. make that obviously doesn't make Republicans better. That that makes them just from the rhetoric alone worse if there is a better or worse. But it's incredibly frustrating um, when the media is out there, and you know, at worst, we'll we'll get vote again if if you know this happens again under Republican. It's like vote the Democrats back in so that this can happen and we can ignore it, just like it's happening with the mere lock and and being ignored. Exactly, it's mm-hmm. disgusting. Uh, speaking of disgusting but predictable, let's head over to Ukraine. Mm, watch, yes, yes. Uh, the Azov Battalion, uh, you know that that neo-Nazi group that was formed in 2014, shortly after the Euro Maiden protests and blatant coup that put uh, Zelensky in office, uh, made up of of a lot of the neo-Nazis that were very chummy and openly neo-Nazis. Um, during the Euro Maiden protests, including flying, I, I don't think people are familiar with this because they associate they'll associate red and black like with the swastika with Nazis, but they'll associate like a plain mm-hmm. red and black flag as like anarcho communist because that is the anarcho communist col- colors too. But there's a plain red and yeah. black just two stripe flag, and, and again every every country in in the Eastern Bloc had was mostly densely populated with partisans who were mostly communists, uh, regardless of communists or liberal. These were people fighting for their lives against fascism. They had some sect of nationalist li- uh, liberals that were happy to align with Nazis. And then they had their own, you know, fascists, right? Their own Nazi-aligned parties and nationalists. And these were usually, like, largely, you know, their own pogrom-running, um, you know, groups, right, that had been doing this for years under the Russian Empire and, and things like that. They were more than happy to to kill Jews along with alongside the Nazis and kill communists alongside the Nazis. They, they've been doing that since the Romanovs gave them a thumbs up. And um, in Ukraine, that was the OUN. Um, and the OUN, after it was dying out, was kind of revived under a neo-Nazi collaborator, Stepan Bandera. And so then it was termed the OUNB um, and, uh, for OUN Bandera. Um, and the OUNB's flag was just just like the the Ukrainian flag now is a plain like yellow and blue stripe it was just a plain red and black striped flag so when you see that mixed with yellow and blue Ukrainian flags that that's a neo nazi flag that's not an anarcho communist flag that's not some weird hyper local thing that's a neo nazi flag it looks a little plain it is and of course the azov battalion um not by accident right have the uh, it's called wolf i forget what it's called wolf something um for the their their text their symbol but it, it blatantly it's it's rune style it looks almost like an ss if you if you don't squint hard enough right um mm-hmm. and it's because they're they're made up they're formed to be a neo-nazi group and then they got immediately incorporated while they still exist separately they got immediately incorporated into the national guard and and have been used in the fight um against communists in the donbass region of ukraine for basically the entire time Zelensky's been in office. Well, the Azov Battalion is out, like, recruiting civilians to fight 
the Russians because even Zelensky, their their boy wants peace, and because you know he mm-hmm. he knows what's in his interest, right? I mean, we talked about this before. Zelensky's begging for peace. France is bailing him out. Germany and Russia are just trying to peacefully build this pipeline. Like even Zelensky's like, oh shit, yeah, no. I mean, if I don't want like me, my country, and everyone in my country to die in a brutal war, maybe I should want this peace. Maybe all these NATO guys that are huffing me up are, are fucking full of shit, right? But a lot of these neo Nazis that put him in power are. <laughs> you know, American collaborators and they also have their their neo Nazi, you know, ends themselves and are ready to fight the Russians and are ready to pump up the the Western propaganda to fight the Russians and have the American and British media push that. And they're happy to train civilians. And they found an old lady who was happy to, to train against the Russians with the fascists. And if you don't know anything and you just see this old lady training with a gun to defend her country like that, that's gonna touch you in the heart. That's good propaganda right you know i mean you know Mm -hmm. if i see you know an old lady and of course if i'm you know promoting communism and and there's old ladies there's still snipers from you know uh um well no actually i don't know if the snipers from world war ii are alive but they recently were right there's just a few years ago you had snipers alive from world war ii and and you know you do a video of them and it's like yeah you know you're gonna fall in love if you have you know some communists like yeah you know i'll I'll fucking kick their ass right i mean everybody loves an old lady who stands up for herself right and so the azov battalion is blatantly training this old lady and you can see the azov patch on the video that like the bbc and cbs and everyone is putting out and you're just supposed to not recognize just like you know the pictures of these marches that that the azov has been putting on and you're not supposed to recognize those red and black neo-nazi flags i just mentioned you're not supposed to recognize that azov patch on the person standing over the old lady showing her how to shoot um and so just i mean fucking disgusting nazi propaganda right yeah exactly and it's there was also what was it? it was on like state tv or something like that what was the guy's name the soldier that they were interviewing that was like hans Reichstag or something like that like the guy had the most like blatantly (laughs) Nazi sounding name it was it was exactly like when they went and found uh uh what's his what's his name uh they down in South America oh Oh, god oh uh Pinochet when they found like Pinochet's relative or something like that to 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 come out and say that he doesn't support the leftists like it's just it, it's just so blatant and so obvious and it was this whole campaign if you were attacking it from and this is where I will I, I give David my round of applause David David thank you um, but material analysis you sh- people were able to spot people who consistently are good at this were able to spot this right away and say hey no this is what's going on. No, 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 no. They're, they're saber rattling for something entirely different. Russia has no reason to want to no. invade Ukraine and Ukraine definitely doesn't want an invasion with Russia. This doesn't make any day. Oh, Nord Stream 2. Never mind. Never mind. All right. We figured again, when it's, when you can put those pieces together consistently, that is the huge practical. You want a practical reason to be a historical materialist other than the fact that it's objectively the correct way to do things there you go you get to be right about things more often than you're wrong and that's why again it's always on twitter like oh tanky's right again it's like yeah because this system of analysis tends to be more effective than whatever hopes and dreams other people are basing their assumptions and and i'll reiterate with that too the reason to be that is not to say like "Ah, i'm always correct or be the most correct because i'd rather be the most revolutionary than the most correct 
Um, and it's not like it's it's some you know uh, magical like third eye into the future, but you do happen to be correct more because you're just seeing the correct analysis, and that's important so that you can take the correct stances and the correct actions to bring about a revolution and to not fall for imperialist bullshit and to fight these imperialist narratives, and that's what's important. You know, even if we messed up, even if we're wrong, as long as our analysis is consistently correct and takes the material into it. Not only will we usually be right, but we will always be taking the right revolutionary stances. Exactly, and that's um, and that's important when it and, translates into action. And it's also this is another time again. Look around at everybody on to who who fell for this quickly, who who pushed these narratives easily, and what's going to be the ramifications for them? Like, what's going to be the consequence of it? it's? There's going to be fucking nothing. Yeah. It's going to be they're going to spin this around into oh, we deterred them through master diplomacy. Look at us go! And when, when the freaking UK ambassador that they were sending out there, that low level whatever that diplomat's name is, um, couldn't even identify regions of russia versus regions of the ukraine had no idea like was talking to putin or was talking to their uh their foreign secretary and and he was like well should russia have access to these regions he's like we will never give access to these regions and and it was regions already inside of russia it's like they have no idea they are playing the most dumb shit diplomacy i've ever seen in my fucking life and then beyond that it didn't fucking matter because there was nothing there there was nothing there. They do the story every fucking year, and for whatever reason, they decided to really push yeah, it this year. And, and now, and they're doing their, their again. This is where we we talk about like propaganda isn't absent from lies. There's a lot of lies. So when we say you know it's not lies, it's emphasis, right? That's talking about driving tone. That's talking about stripping context. That's talking about choosing what truth even bubbles up to the surface to be seen that's talking about you know decorating like everything like oh these these north korean defectors um you know their stories always change but it's a, but then like pepper the whole article about how how they're you know caught lying consistently with dictatorial regime di- dictatorial regime right um you know it's it's about that stuff and the lies right and so with this, they're they're going about with non-falsifiable stuff, um, you know, where it's basically like, oh, Russia's Russia's going to attack. They're going to attack any day now. They're going to attack. They're going to attack. They're going to attack. And then they're saying like, well, our intelligence say that just because they don't, you know. So if they do attack, right? Which which again, the U.S. is trying to draw them into. It's aha. See, we told you. Um, even though they weren't going to, right? It would be the saber rallying that draws them in. Uh, and if they don't attack, it's, aha, we deterred them. And so no matter what actually happens, they must be right, even though there's no proof and they just made the shit up, right? And yeah. and so they, exactly. they go with these non-falsifiable narratives all the time. And these non... The, the, the tone of the, you know... We're right no matter what, right? We we need to stop Russia. We need to stand up for Russia, or uh, not for Russia, against Russia. And, um, you know, if, if they attack, we're right. And if they don't, we're wrong. Then that gets into people's heads that, like, oh, Russia is an aggressor. And Russia must be stopped. And Russia's doing it again, right? It's just like Crimea. Crimea, mm-hmm. when they saw the rise of fascism in Ukraine, this this independent peninsula, 
right that that was handed over to Ukraine in the USSR in the the fifties and and you know acts as their own um, state within was, was acting as their own state within Ukraine voted to secede into Russia. They had a seventy percent vote from their population. That didn't matter. It was Russia annexing Crimea, Russian aggression, right? It's it's policing the tone to the point where then you stack on the lies and they're more believable because the tone's been set. And then the truth is exposed and it's, well, oh, well, they're still bad. And, and you know, and all of a sudden then truth doesn't yeah. matter because the truth is Russia bad, a U.S., U.S., NATO, Great Britain, whoever, good, right? Um, and yeah. that's that's how it always works. And so, of course, it's it's soaked with lies, and it's important that we debunk those lies. But it's all about this tone and this non-falsifiable crap, and they are running the non-falsifiable crap up the flagpole right now. Yep, you can see it happening right now on Twitter mm-hmm. that they are they are immediately going into, ha ha, we were right all along, even though nothing yeah. happened. Uh, the. Uh, <laughs> Last but not least in current events, uh, a little bit north of our border, we have this is this is where if I was a good editor, I would edit in C.W. McCall's convoy and we would we would talk about we would we would have some ru- some big rigs flying through. But I'm not one of those. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. So instead, we're just going to talk about the quote unquote freedom convoy for yeah. a hot second. Yeah, uh, the Freedom Convoy um, that's that's supposedly truckers and has some truckers in it. And again, you know, any any group of working class people will have right wing people in it. You know, we we look at like unions, and unions are are full of working class people who understand their power as workers and stand up against bosses. And of course, a lot of people in unions are naturally going to be more left wing than people that are not in them. And even unions have you know, right-wing people in them, white supremacist people in them, right? Um, of course, any working-class sure. group will have that, and so you get the the white supremacist truckers, and it's, look, it's truckers, it's truckers, and it's not that many, and then these, these rallies are full of, they're full of, you know, ex-military Canadians, they're full of current and ex-cops um, in Canada. The cops, certainly, when you see them, they're looking towards the counter-protesters and away from the protesters, even though they're supposedly yeah. telling the protesters to back down is what all the news is saying, right? Um, you can see them shaking hands and hugging and, and being on the side of these protesters. And and most truckers in the United States and Canada are not there. Most truckers in Canada, right? And this is something you don't see. If this is the, the common population of truckers in Canada... Uh, to my under- and, and I'm in the United States, so I, I again uh, this is this is stuff that I've I've read. But my understanding is most truckers in Canada are of Asian descent, right? Especially South Asian. Mm-hmm. So if you're not seeing yeah. anybody out there who's like, you know, Sheikh or Muslim or or really of any Asian descent whatsoever, <laughs> these aren't the real bulk yeah. population of truckers in Canada. I'm sorry. Most truckers are fine with no. vaccines, and they've already and they've they've already. I mean, it polls. It, it, it even just on basic polling, it polls as overwhelmingly populations overwhelmingly against them. Nobody really even buys conservatives it. and small, Republicans are, are largely against them. Exactly. Um, exactly. Are are against it, which which you can go back to. Well, Canada's a more decorum based, polite society. No, it's whatever not. You it's, want to it's, say. it's U.S. North. I'm aware. That's why I said it in the snooty okay. voice. Um, but beyond beyond that, um, what you what what is less interesting to me is is what it represented on its face, which was again a group of disgruntled 
uh, libertarians, call yeah. them what they are, a bunch of disgruntled libertarians, yeah. uh, showed up and and with plenty of i mean did you hear were you hearing the conversations that were happening when they were that i think zello is the name of the app or whatever they were oh, using all those, I was seeing those clips like disgusting clips of people like disrespectfully burning sage and and smoking it like a cigar and oh yeah no that is horri- yeah that was horrendous but then you had their actual conversations where they're like you know that Hitler guy's not literally. You know that Hitler guy's not so bad. They might be li- if they're lying to you about that. What else will they lie mm. to you about? Like, I'm not exaggerating. That sounds facetious. It's not. It's it's all over yeah. fucking Twitter. Like the audio logs are there. It's it's horrendous. This is not a group of people ostensibly that you would think should have any sort of support from any quote unquote leftist yeah. group. Not not in the least bit. And yet. <laughs> And yet, yeah, look, look, okay. So there, there are people that are full of shit. There are, there are grifters upon grifters upon grifters. And some of them are just, you know, like Twitch streamers. Some of them just have their little radio shows. And some of them are actually part of a very good research outlet that that does anti-imperialist research but are also, you know, the kids of U.S. politicians that are huffing their own fucking farts and and buddy-buddy with the little radio show comedian grifters. Um, But that's not, like, the real on-the-ground left-leaning people, right? You're not going to go have conversations at your party organizing and have to tell people, no, 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 those truckers aren't on our side, right? It's just a little sect of, of bullshit. And, and not that it doesn't matter and you shouldn't care, because that that's a contact of people and, and their politics, right? Like, we're not doing this podcast yeah. because this stuff doesn't matter. Online media matters quite a bit. But it's not... It's not significant amounts of left-leaning people, especially not left-leaning people who are on the ground organizing and doing the actions. And so it's important to debunk that shit, but it's not important to feel threatened as a left for that shit. It's just important to feel threatened by the lies, the same reason we're threatened by imperialist lies, right? You know, most of us, most people out there organizing can go, I'm not on Tucker Carlson's side, right? But that doesn't mean that we should. You would that think doesn't so. mean we should let people fall for it. So it is important to debunk. I'm not going to minimize that. I'm not going to be like that little junk of people doesn't matter. But that's not. I mean, it's. I mean, Richard Richard Wolf for yeah, God's sakes. I mean, come on, so that guy's dumb. supposed to be better yeah, than that. Yeah, it's so dumb, so dumb. And and again, I mean, and this whole thing, this whole fucking thing, it's that it, they're supposed to be quarantine when they go into Canada if they're not vaccinated. That's all this is about. And they've been at this for more than two weeks. Every one of them that stopped there could be done and, and, and have gotten back into Canada and it'd be all fine, right? They're just throwing a fucking fit. And there's one thing to like, okay, you know, take more than two weeks. And let's be real. It's not, let's be real. It's not that. It's not, it, this is no, not, it's, oh, the two week ban it's is never, it's, it, it's never it that, in- right? If it was a just cause, it would be because it's about more than the two week ban. And if it's an unjust cause, it's just being used for symbolism, right? It's, it's exactly, yeah. it's just, it's symbolism. And it's, but again, it's just this, this mindset, but this mindset is important to debunk because at the end of the day, all people are getting hooked. People are getting hooked mm-hmm. in on working class movement, and you need to work. Lenin said you need to work across with people. Mark said you're going to need to work with people you don't like and that aren't on your side, and and this, that, and the other. And it, 
people are buying it a lot. Like it is not an isolated phenomenon, at least online. Now, again, if you're on the ground organizing and talking in your groups, you know, maybe you're not hearing any of this, but for a large swath of people that do get influenced by online media and things like well, that. Yeah, and, and again, and we, we do this going that around on matter. Twitter. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that that's not true. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it, it comes down to that. People are having a very hard time differentiating what is a working class movement and what isn't. And that looks like a botchy little color revolution very close yes. to home. So being able to spot those and spot those yes. effectively, if they're going to start using tactics like this domestically, uh, more so than we see them use them internationally right now, that is something that you have to be good at spotting quickly so that you know what to support, where to where to lend your support and where not to. Yeah, so, again, you'll notice working class stuff because there will be working class demands, right? If they're doing something that's not economic, it's because it's life or death. Black lives matter, right? It's life or death. Um, And so it's either life or death or it's economic, right? This is for neither of those things. This is for neither of those things because it's a bunch of shit. It is economic. I'll tell you it's economic because it's right-wing economics, right? They want people to forget the pandemic and just go back to slogging and working and not have, quote-unquote, red tape up there. We There's two there's two right-wing ideologies that are, are prominent in, in liberal circles, and that's where we get this party dichotomy. Now, of course, there's a broad spectrum within and outside of these that can fit into liberalism, but there's two primary um, liberal dichotomies, okay? There's the system is perfect, it's just, everything is good about it. So, you know, trust the CIA and cops and the CDC and and NPR and everything, and we're all good and capitalism the best, and, and we might have some warts, but we're all forming them, and we just need to be better together, right? And that's, of course, a crock of shit, because the system is a cause for all these problems. And then there's I love all the problems and the ideology of the system, but the system, because it has to appease people, gets in its own way, and it's all a bunch of red tape, and we need to cut the red tape. Oh, police shouldn't have to be under review or deal with reform when they brutalize people. Oh, the news that sells us all these imperialist narratives and how homeless people are are some kind of pest and disease that needs to be swept and and does all this this shit for the the grand small business owner can't be listened to human beings you know um that is um that is the the other ideology there right is is that the system itself must be the problem that's where you hear big government they love they love exactly what the system stands for they love what the system's important for notice their big government is never the military and police are too big right mm-hmm. um it's that the military and police deal with bureaucracy bureaucracy meaning not getting to murder people for their sexuality or the color of their skin because they're bored um you know and so when you see those two, there's going to be clashes and sometimes nestled in there will be issues that matter to working class people because any of those, you know, um, groups can have to latch on to some level of popularity in sham uh, elective politics. But most of what they stand for is a bunch of shit. When you see working class stuff, it's stuff that the system is resisting, right? The system is killing us. The system is starving us. The system will not give us health care. The system will not recognize our humanity. The system is bombing people for profit. Um, you know, it's it's 
life or death, someone's life or death, um, or it's economic. That's what you see from working class movements, and you see it full of broad working class people. Exactly. You know, we're not sitting here saying like, oh, this, we've talked about it before, you know, like we, if something, we can't pink wash and say like, oh, this anti-imperial effort um, and these, this, these group that's been colonized has to be thrown under the bus because NBC said they're homophobic or something, you know, that's where you're going to have to deal with people that, that you don't like. You're not going to be like, oh, these overt fascists are you know, pretending to be working class and, and shouting really loud. We, we got to give in to them and pretend they're the working class. No, that's not what was fucking said at all. That's bullshit. And if that was fucking said, that that would mean Marx and Lenin were wrong there. I'm sorry. They just yeah. would. But they didn't say that shit. They just did not. And and that's when we talked about way back in State and Rev, right? And when we talked about Bernstein and and misconstruing Marx and, and, and revising Marx into to, um, you know, elective democratic socialism um, and and support for imperialism and all that bullshit, right? All the things that we call Bernstein out for, all the things that Lenin spent the entire book calling Kautsky out for. Yep. That's what that is. Okay, mm-hmm. don't, don't fall for that. You can't say, oh, this is their words. You're better than that. We're better than that. There's a reason we read State and Rev right after Capital, yep. right? The, the first time where, where we weren't going, hmm, I wonder if we can do a podcast. We're going, we have a podcast. We should pick a book. We immediately went to State and Rev because cutting through the bullshit is important and that is bullshit that has to be cut through yes that all being said it is time to do a little bit of reading this week gang uh we are starting on chapter 15 of neocolonialism by kwame Nkrumah. chapter 15 is economic pressures in the congo republic On June 30th, 1960, when the Congo became independent, there began what will undoubtedly be regarded by historians as the most stormy and complex character in that country's, and for that matter's, Africa's history. Complex chapter, by the way. Huh? Complex chapter. Complex chapter. What did I say? Character. You know, know, sometimes (laughs) words have meaning and, and sometimes they don't. We both we both screw up from time to time, and, and we just let it go. But when it starts changing the meaning of stuff, yeah. it's like, yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Complex chapter in that country's, and for that matter, Africa's history. Within a few weeks, there was a breakdown of law and order when soldiers of the force publique disappointed because independence did not bring immediate improvement in their position, seized arms, arrested white officers and NCOs, and finally broke up into rioting bands. It was at this point that Moise Tshombe, with the help of Belgian advisors, began the proceedings which led to the secession of the Katanga province. The newly independent Republic of the Congo was crippled by disorder and unrest. The story of the United Nations intervention and Lumbamba's murder are well known, and so are the political events which have followed. Less publicized for obvious reasons have been involved economic aspects of the whole Congo tragedy. Yet there are these are... A, in many ways, the more significant and certainly the more sinister since they are dominated by foreign interests whose main concern has always been for their own private gain. I'm They're- suddenly excited about this chapter because it's, it's talking about the stuff kind of behind the curtain of the coup and, and the, the dirty assassination of Lumumba, which, as we know, was tragic uh, for, for um, Congo and Central, France, or Central Africa, the, the part of 
and I don't know why I'm thinking France because Congo broke away from Belgium. My brain is broken. French people are ruining it. God damn it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was not much American investment in the Congo before 1960. What there was was largely indirect through Tanganyika concessions and Union Minaret and the Anglo-American holdings of the Oppenheimer Group and came mainly from the Rockefeller Group. This group also had participations in the important textile company Filatures at Tisange's African Africans, created in 1946 by the Cotton Union and the Société Générale. The Rockefeller family holds 60,000 shares, of which 3,000 are in the hands of Nelson Rockefeller. 26,000 belong to Lawrence Rockefeller, who has also a minority interest in two other companies of the Société Générale's group, C. Générale du Automobiles et Aviation du Congo and Les Cements du Congo. He owns about 14% of the capital of the company for the manufacture in the Congo of metal boxes and all other articles from enameled sheets, and the same share in the Congo company for the production and trade in pineapples. Anna Congo. In 1952, both Lawrence and David Rockefeller participated in acquiring about 30% of the 30% of Syndicat pour l'étude géologique et minerai de la cuvette congolaise. Oh, man. The French names aren't going to stop, are they? They're not going to stop. The French and the Belgian. I'm very very happy I'm not reading French and Belgian things. Um, All petroleum products used in the Congo continue to be imported from abroad, and the giant Rockefeller Trust, Les SO Standard, created a distribution subsidiary in the Congo in 1956. Les SO Congo Belge, rechristened SO Central Africa in 1960. Another subsidiary, the Sakani Vacuum Petrol Company and Texas Petroleum have minority participations in the Société Générale des Entrées Possages des Produits de Petrol. There I'm, are. I'm going to use context clues and say lasso is oil. Um, yeah, considering that's right. standard oil, yeah, yeah. So uh, Congo Belgian oil uh, translated, and then let's see what was the other one. Um, I lost it. There was another last. So, okay. Anyway, just yeah, moving no. on. Just trying to keep keep track of things. Yes, there are a lot of, lot of oil using, going on in here. Using the big brain. Using the big brain. There are some American plywood companies there, such as United States Plywood Corporation with Agrifor and Corin Congo, and in the Syndicat du Papier. Pluswood Industries has an agreement with Co Minerai, who have together formed the Societe Congolese Belgio Americane pour la Transformation du Bois du Congo Soak Bellum. Couldn't have just given me Soak Bellum, could you? <laughs> All in Matheson Industries, which have interest in the Poundries Reunions de Belgique, have participated with Union Minerai and several other groups of the Societe Generale in creating the Societe Africaine des Exploisifs Aphrodex. Olin Matheson have a fifth of the capital. Others investing in there include the Industrial and Investing Corporation, New York, Armco, Steel, Bell Telephone, General Motors, and Otis Elevators. Since 1960, the Bank of America has acquired 20% in the Lambert Bank Group's Soak Bank. Ford has founded Ford Motors Congo. Union Carbide has taken a dominant participation in Somilu. Created in 1960 to exploit a pyrochlor mine, this mineral contains niobium, a rare metal used in making special steels. 
David Rockefeller made a tour to the Congo in 1959 for information, after which his group took up 1,000 out of 26,000 shares in Société des Recherches d'Exploitation du Bauxite au Congo. Box of Congo. In June 1960, he announced that he would take up about 8% of the 65 millions of capital in C. du Congo pour le commerce et l'industrie and CCCI Dylan Reed & Co. and J.H. Whitney & Co., Bankers of New York, have created an investment company to examine the possibilities of American investment in the Congo. This is the American Euro-African Fund. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> David, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. tired of reading French names. Yeah, no, I, I I totally get you. Your your tongue is probably sore, uh, but the fact of the matter is, we're talking about, of course, you know Rockefeller and Ford and Union Carbide and Bank of America, um, all here just descending upon the Congo, um, and these are all names that people should fully understand who they are by now. Um, as a result of the Belgian Congo held a considerable portfolio of investments, which at the most moderate estimate were valued at 40 million francs. In addition, it possessed variant prerogatives such as voting rights and the right to nominate representatives to administrative boards and a whole series of enterprises in which it did not hold capital participations. This portfolio comprised participations and rights in enterprises of parasocial character. This is, again, bank. Belgian Central Bank Society General stuff. Um, committee Katanga investment companies um, like Sidu Katanga mining companies, transport enterprises, production distribution, and private enterprises. Uh, the possession of this important portfolio permitted the public authorities in principle to exercise a considerable influence in the Congo economy and even to control completely certain import sectors. Moreover, official statements justified these participations, declaring that they allowed the state to exercise its role as guardian of the public interest and tutor of the natives. That is Ooh, not colonial gross. shit right there. Gross. Yeah. Um, the example of the CSK is significant in this respect. Leopold II had controlled the semi-public organism by reserving to the state the right to nominate four out of the six members of its administration. But after taking over the Congo by Belgium, CSK was, during 50 years, the docile instrument of the Union Minaret, although it had every opportunity to control the Great Katanga Trust. CSK was by far the biggest shareholder of Union Minaret, and the statutes elaborated in 1906 officially conferred on it important rights in Union Minaret, notably that of designated the administrative council and a certain number of directors. CSK never used these tights, but on the contrary, confined it its representation to the most obvious leaders of private capital. The hold of the trust in the Congo administration was total, the more so since the big companies were able to ensure considerable material advantages to the representatives of the state who passed into their service. Before June 1960, the trust speeded up their maneuvers to prevent the Congolese people from coming into possession of their patrimony. At this time of the roundtable conference, the financial press was emphatically insisting on the Belgian government obtaining guarantees from the future Congo Republic. In the very first place, it is necessary to shelter the enterprises from eventual nationalization. Mm -hmm. Again, you can see the issue here, right? Yep. How dare they actually benefit from the natural resources? Yep. We need our corporations to descend upon there and vampirically suck away every mineral, 
every natural resource, right? The rubber, the steel, the whatever that metal was, it said it worked in steel, that Union Minaret was, was drying out, all of it. The Congolese Nationalist Parties were, however, unanimous in opposing the maintenance by the Belgian financial groups of an economic protectorate over the Congo after June 30th, 1960. Consequently, they insisted the Congo portfolio should be transferred integrally and without conditions to the Young Republic, which would be able to make use of rights arising from it to its name, its own representatives on the parastatial organisms, and if should such be the case, in the private Congolese companies. It was this which frightened Belgian financial circles. The prospect of seeing the Congo Republic making use of the incontestable rights that the possession of the Congolese portfolio would confer upon it. To avert this, Raymond Shaven vainly tried the maneuver, which was quickly recognized by the Congolese leaders. He proposed to answer the financial needs of the Congo by creating a mixed investment company to which the Congo could confer the management of its portfolio. Belgium, on its side, bringing an annual contribution of 1 billion francs. If this attempt failed, the Belgian government was all the happier in the case of the chartered companies, whose dissolution in extremis it would decree a few days before June 30th. It was also decided to dissolve CSK and CNKI before Congo acceded to independence. On the occasion of the Roundtable Conference, Shaven parlayed the certain Congolese delegates whom he tried to persuade that it would be better if the Belgian government itself proceeded with this measure before 30th June. He made them believe it was preferable because if Congolese government did it afterward, this could create a bad impression abroad, giving rise to the belief that they had something against the private companies. Oh no, yeah. what would we do if we made everybody think we may not circle jerk to colonial companies? The maneuver was clever. It was easier to convince the Congolese delegates, since most of them showed an understandable distrust towards the, towards the chartered companies. They had only too often had occasion to declare that the companies played the game of the big trusts. As to these, certain Congolese parties had called for the dissolution of the companies and the transfer of their rights to the Congolese state. The Belgian officials charged with giving technical enlightenment to the participants at the roundtable conference were openly careful to indicate that the Congo Republic could repay the colonialists for their part by using in the interests of the Congolese people the prerogatives and the companies which would devolve upon the state. A hurried decree of June 27, 1960, three days before the proclamation of independence, sanctioned the dissolution of the CSK and the division of its assets between the Congo and the C. Dukatanga. At a stroke, the Congo Republic lost the possibility of utilizing the powerful instruments of command which it would have disposed of in taking over the direction of the CSK, and the prerogatives of the Union Minaret were preserved. Through the intermediary CSK, which would have, in fact, become a Congolese parastatal organism, the Congo Republic would, in effect, have obtained the statutory right to designate the president of the Katanga Trust and a certain number of other directors on its board. And the Congolese government could have even preempted its views in the general meetings of the Union Minaret through the CSK, which was the biggest shareholder of the company. The dissolution of the CSK was not only lost to the Congo Republic, the possibility of benefiting from the prerogatives of this organism. The convention of June of 27th, June 1960, accorded considerable additional advantage to the C. Dukatanga, which received full ownership of a third of the lands improved by the CSK, allotment zones. Its real estate and bankings, as well as the right to a third of the rents which were expected in the future from the mineral concessions allocated by CSK. 
if the ground rights and mineral rights not already conceded revert to the Congo, this re- restitution of rights over the Congolese land and mineral patrimony will not be affected without compensation, since the convention stipulates that the Congo Republic must pay in compensation a forfeiture indemnity of $100 million to the Sea du Katanga. The CNKI was formed for a period which will expire on December 31st, 2011. Here again, it would have been sufficient if the Congolese government utilized the rights conferred on it by the statute to exercise a predominant, a preponderant influence in this para-state organism. The Belgian authorities, however, concluded that with the officials of the CNKI, a convention which decided that the Belgian Congo would withdraw purely and simply as a concession partner and renounce at the same time all its rights in the association. A decree issued on May 30th, 1960, approved this convention, and by a stroke, CNKI ceased to be a semi-official state organism. On the 21st of June, 1960, its shareholders decided, in addition to transform it into a common stock company called the Societe Belgio-Africaine, du Kivu Sobaki. This company reserved the right to exploit for its own private profit exclusively the mines of the CNKI, as well as the integral property of the portfolio, which the organism had constituted. If the public authorities take over administration of the crown lands, the convention provides that the shareholders of Sabaki shall receive in compensation a just indemnity. To give the appearance of legality to these conventions, the representatives of the Belgian government declared that they acted in accordance with the wishes expressed by the economic, financial, and social conference which took place in the Brussels in the months of April and May 1960. In reality, in pronouncing the dissolution of the CSK and the CNKI, the Belgian authorities wanted above all to place before the new Congolese state an accomplished fact. In order to show how indispensable the financial support of Belgium was, the Belgian companies had, in fact, taken care to make massive withdrawals of capital at the same time they pushed to the maximum the export of Congolese products. On the other hand, limited to the extreme their imports. The Congolese trade balance resulting from the action gave an exceptionally high surplus in 1959, 13,417 million francs, which did nothing to save the Congo from the very great financial difficulties. In fact, a heavy proportion of the sums anticipated from the sale of the Congolese products were not returned to the colony, and more than 7 billions of private capital left the Congo in the course of the exercise. These maneuvers have cost the young African state sad convulsions and have brought it to the edge of chaos, and they have done nothing to resolve the essential problem for the future of the Congo, how to recover from underdevelopment. That is just a series of how to fucking dirty not actually give up any any um autonomy to a country and this is of course you know this is above and beyond uh the coup and assassination of lumba yeah it was it was astonishing it was that was a <laughs> it, yeah, it was just that, so so uh, casually and, and done like, yeah and i like how how it was called out by Nkrumah like for the veneer of legality. Like, oh, we, we all agreed with this together. It was democratic. This was the right way to go about it. And this is how things are done now, right? Oh, we, we you know, we brought up to, to NATO and the United Nations and we all voted for this and discussed it. And and this is the agreement. And it, it's all how shit goes now, right? Um, and, and it's done dirty all the time. Um, and, I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Yeah. Um, these are tactics that they learned probably long before this. And they used here, and Congo was already a region that was so deeply exploited 
um, by King Leopold and by, you know, the Belgian government and Belgian companies for like rubber and, and other resources um, with some of the worst brutalities. Um, you know, people had like, you know, limbs cut off and, and, and were killed over not stripping rubber quickly enough. Um, and in its recovery from the underdevelopment that caused, they just basically sent the biggest and the strongest companies after them and then pulled a bait and switch on them. And it was a bait and switch that at first didn't fool the authorities. The authorities were smart enough to call out their shit. And they went back and reworked it to where it was just enough to convince them. And then they, they had the whole thing lined up behind them to pull the rug out from under them. Yeah, it was it. It was embarrassing. It, it is it is so just disgusting. I mean, that, and the, the worst part is, again, you know, the, the Congolese authorities, the Congolese people fighting for independence were smart enough not to fall for it. They weren't duped because yeah. they were dumb. They were smart enough not to fall for it. And and it was another trick. And the other trick wasn't wasn't even foolish to do. It was that Belgium had Belgium had such a lineup of ways to turn it into a bullying tactic and to snatch the control and the resources back away. Yeah. It it's it's become all too familiar throughout this story. Mm-hmm. We, we rem- I remember a couple of a number of chapters back the the story the uh, tribal leader that went to go negotiate mineral rights and they basically showed up with two guys, read him a contract that he didn't understand, made had him sign it and signed away the mineral rights to an entire region. Um, yeah. And then when he goes to them and says, "Hey, under your rule of law, this shouldn't have been right. This shouldn't have been done." Never heard of a thing back. Yeah, and then the thing is, it wasn't even like he understand because like he wasn't smart enough. Like he he had to have it translated. And they said, "No, oh, it no, wasn't no, in his language." It yeah, it wasn't yeah. in a language he could read. Like that's, yeah, that's not they, they lack gave of him, understanding. They gave, him, they gave him a dishonest rundown, and of course that's with it. That's with the Western imposed. Not only is this a Western imposed control, but this was Western imposed legality. And then it was all it was all legal. It was all above board. Yeah. Like according to your rules, not not it, these rules. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's, not the rules. There's not an innate rules of the world that you followed, an innate world authority that's just that we, we you know, agreed upon and shook hands with, right? You just exercised your power and then claimed that it was it was totally legal and above board. Exactly. And we see it all the time. We see it still. Mm-hmm. Like you said, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, that is where we will end it for the week. We are getting ready to start Chapter 16, Monetary Zones and Foreign Banks. Oh, goody. Um, but that will be for next week. For now, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. There are a number of different ways that you can reach out to us if you would like to. Uh, the first of which is directly through email. It's marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Uh, next, you could get us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at marksmadnesspod. Uh, we're there. DMs are open. Uh, and if you need uh, to get to us on a more you know individual level, or you want to talk, you want to talk in a group setting, or, or you just kind of want to hang out with another group of uh, communists and and other leftists of that stripe, uh, well then you could join our Discord server. Our Discord is the Marx Madness Discord server. It is linked in our Twitter bio. You can also email us directly for a link to that if you would like. Um, and that is just a nice place where again a lot of a lot of comrades like to hang out, vent about the day talk about what's going on in the world book club is going they just finished um what is to be done and i believe they're moving on to on the road by uh by shea guevara next um so that should be a fun one um if i can find me a goddamn copy 
Um, that being said, uh, David, it is time for our disclaimer this week. Yeah. So, of course, you know, we started this all because Nathan wanted to recap it all with me. And that's always something that's better to read as a group, just like any other piece of theory or history. Um, and so, you know, we read it, the two of us, and we thought, wow, two's a pretty small group. So maybe we'll record it. And if it goes well enough, maybe we'll share it with the world and see what happens. And, um, a few years and hundreds of episodes and, uh, thousands of, of people on board later, here we are. And, um, ever since then, what our vision was, was hopefully you're out there in some party, in some group, uh, organizing whatever your reading group, your political education group is doing. Hopefully they're reading along these works with us. And we could be another voice, another, uh, person in the crowd, another source of context, of tying it back, of uh, making sure you understand and soak in the work. Um, let's say that's not it. Let's say your group's reading something shorter, something more applicable to something that they're working on at the time. Um, you know, something that, that is more pertinent to a certain current event that they feel. Um, and you're reading this on your own. Uh, hopefully we can be that reading group. Uh, we can give you that context. We can give you, uh, the chance to review over the work and to better soak it in and, and understand it. And let's say it's not that. Let's say it's either a work like this where we're reading it word for word. So it's more of an enhanced ebook or it's something we summarize more, give you a little more of a cliff notes to it. Uh, whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we want this work out there guiding your actions. And anytime these works are driven into political action, that's a phenomenon called praxis. And of course, praxis by definition, cannot exist without theory since it is theory in action and without praxis this theory is completely useless they go hand in hand they are tied at the hip amen as always that being said this has been mark's madness pod my name is nathan my name's david and we will talk to you all next week bye